So today's topic, design in nature. Let me introduce our participants today. And when I announce your name, if you can raise your hand. Elizabeth Alter, Adrian Bejan, Robin Collins, Mark Norell, and Caleb Scharf. And without further ado, I turn this over to our participants. Okay, well, I guess we're talking about design in nature. And, you know, design in nature has always been one of these things that people have questioned since the origins of modern science, especially in Western Europe and things with the origin of the, the Enlightening. And, you know, design in nature can be boiled down into two different things. One, is there a creator? Is there some intelligent being who figured all this stuff out? Or are we just the products of physical constraint? I mean, is it the reason that knees look like hinges is because that's the way it works? Is the reason that uh, we have uh, so many of the same kinds of eyes and everything from uh, giant squids to ourselves, uh, is that just because of things that are embedded within our developmental patterns in our DNA and with evolution being an optimizing criteria, an optimizing process, that that's just what ends up under different selective regimes. So this has always been two different kinds of things which people have looked at. Uh, myself, I'm more on the kind of just, I'm just replicating a piece of DNA and this is just the way that it works out as far as that, uh, uh, the, the way that we deal with the world either through constraint, when I say constraint, it's either through physical constraints from the external part or through constraints just on the basis of what that our genetic material is possible to be able to do uh, within certain kinds of things, along with our developmental channeling. But, you know, some other people have some different opinions, so let's I, open it up. I would see that as not, you, you kind of painted those two as contraries, but you might ask about the constraints themselves, mm -hmm. whether there's a design-like pattern in those constraints. And so you could have it, and you, you have to look at reality, physical reality, in different levels. You've got the you know, biological level down to the chemical level. But, and the biological level seems to be at least a lot of accidents, seems to be the, um, one of the governing principles. But when you get all the way down to, let's say, the physical level, that's where I think a real big question comes in. To what degree does that look random, or is um, that have a design-like character. And by design in a very general sense, I would say that the parts, so you can invoke a creator, but I think there's even a more general sense in which the parts are arranged in some intricate way so that they realize some easily recognizable overall property. I and think so in the property. case of, like I work in the area of you know, fine-tuning of the cosmos for mm -hmm. life, and so there, things seem, do seem to be extremely well adjusted so that life can exist. Uh, I would disagree. You go ahead and then come back. Well, the, um, I, I, I get, I get it, I know uh, this uh, understanding of design as you stated it, but it is uh, a novelty uh, because English is, uh, in fact, a very, very young language. Um, design uh, is a very old concept. It comes from Latin. Uh, the word signum means sign. It is something that's um, um, discernible, meaning to us, the observers. And uh, this uh, observation, the sign, 
conveys a message which, uh, if followed, it means that it's use useful to us. Engineering, which is my uh, education, comes from that. It is about, uh, uh, okay, making better drawings. And so uh, that's, uh, that's design. And um, where the um, image comes from, for example, the shape of a leaf or uh, uh, the, uh, the bend in a river, is, uh, is the observation. Is that, has that nothing to do, nothing to do with, uh, with uh, who made that. Uh, it is all about uh, the observer uh, 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 getting the idea that that observation is useful. So that you observe it with it, with the observation, and with the artifact that comes from uh, doing something, acting, uh, based on that observation, the observer becomes a, uh, a, uh, a more empowered uh, mover of, um, of uh, itself or herself, uh, himself on the, on the landscape. So that's design. And so design is one of the most uh, universal phenomena, the, the most universal phenomenon, uh, phenomenon of, uh, of value to us uh, that exists. It's right there with, or down there with gravity and with, uh, with irreversibility, the second law of thermodynamics. That's design. I agree design. with that entirely, but isn't that a lot because of it's just constraint? That there's physical well, Quite the opposite, it's about freedom. Not constraints. Without freedom, <laughs> on the contrary, without freedom, there is no, there is no, uh, no, uh, no uh, discernible image, no change in that image, no evolution. And uh, but you can speak to this better than yeah. anyone because it's like that. It's certainly, I mean, that there is constraint within the physical world and stuff of that. Uh, what you know, organisms are capable of doing and not capable of doing. Sure. I mean, the classic example of this uh, is uh, the. Laryngeal nerve in the giraffe, right? Which um, this is a sort of a case study in evolutionary biology. Um, the laryngeal nerve in, in the giraffe branches off the basal, uh, the vagus nerve in the brain, travels all the way down through some arteries in the heart, and then back up the neck of the giraffe where it innervates the larynx. Why would it travel all that way down and all the way back? Well, it's just because of the constraint from its ancestors. So that design, if you could call it that, evolved in um, our fish ancestors. And um, that constraint, that physiological constraint, remains in the giraffe, even though it, it causes this bizarre sort of morphology. Um, but one of the, I think when you're speaking about freedom that comes uh, as part of design, in, 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 as an evolutionary Genomicist, I think of that as uh, variation, the raw variation that um, is necessary for adaptation. Right? And um, I think the, one of the uh, interesting aspects to consider when we think about um, nature and whether it's uh, whether you know, as the Da Vinci quote that we were that we were provided with suggests that um, nothing is extra in nature because it's so finely designed for its environs. Um, if we look at the genome, say the human genome, three billion base pairs, 50% of that, fully 50% of that is, is repetitive DNA with no known purpose. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of extra stuff out there in nature and, and um, surely it's shaped by constraint, but it's that variation that allows freedom uh, to adapt. I'm just biding my time. <laughs> um, well, maybe just to, I, so I'm trying to understand when you talk about freedom. So I guess, you know, I come out of physics, and so to me, all that 
we're talking about here, and what you've talked about, what you've talked about is, you know, it boils down to, well, the constraints. There are there are constraints of. I don't want to use the word design. Wow, that's terrible. I don't want to use the word design. There are, you know, everything is is finding its way through a complex energy landscape. I mean, as a physicist, we always we always resort to this. We always say, well, it's all all about. Um, finding free energy to do work. So our molecules are doing that all the time, our DNA is doing all that, that, that all the time. It's the root of biological evolution at some level. Is These organisms, they're, they're exploring this vast chemical landscape and where there is opportunity to extract free energy and do work, it will happen. And why is that? Because the whole universe is driven towards dissipation of, of energy. Right, and moving towards a higher entropy state. And so, I guess, is, is that the freedom that you see? Is that this vast, camp, this vast energy landscape that everything from the river to the molecule is exploring? I will, okay, since you, uh, I like that you speak uh, the language of thermodynamics, <laughs> I'll try to make it uh, uh, more readable to everybody. Um, the, um, First of all, I like the title of your blog, uh, Life Unbounded. Here's a comment on the so-called constraint. Uh, it does not exist, okay? There's <laughs> the, the, the space is to be, to be accessed by these flows that you bring up, the flows that are driven by the power that you bring up. Uh, the so-called free energy, uh, a much better name for that is fuel or food for those of us who live on this planet, um, is, um, is converted into the, uh, into the uh, power by engines. And most of the engines are natural, uh, okay? Uh, animals are uh, basically engines on, uh, on the trucks. And, uh, of course, we are now uh, very lucky to, to be uh, riding on engines uh, made by, by uh, uh, smarter humans uh, 200 years ago in Britain, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and propelling us much, much more cheaply. But the, uh, the question that uh, is not being addressed until now is, uh, what is that uh, uh, power coming from the free energy uh, useful uh, for? To what end? And the end is for a greater, easier movement, movement into this uh, free space. Um, and yes, uh, available time, because um, obviously, um, here I speak uh, autobiographically, I would like to, I like to live longer, and so I could <laughs> move uh, more easily all over, all over and bring others along with me, you see? So that's the tendency. Um, as Niels Bohr said, uh, 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 nature is uh, is uh, is about us. It's about it's what we say about nature. Uh, so that's what's interesting. Um, so that's the the beginning of a more inclusive picture of uh, the topic. I I read parts of your book, um, and I had a question for you: the constructural laws that things tend constructive. Constructal. If, if you can say fractal, okay. then uh, it's constructal. It's okay. constructal law yeah. is that things, systems move towards more easier and easier flow. 
Is your greater access, I like to, uh, yeah. So, I access. mean, just a couple really everyday examples. You know, my drain gets plugged up. It seems like it's went from less easy flow for easy flow to less <laughs> easy flow, or arteries get clogged. So how do you deal with examples like that? Uh, those examples are very different. The, uh, your drain uh, gets plugged up because your drain, uh, the pipe is uh, not natural. It is not, uh, a, uh, it's not free to morph. To morph to live with the uh, with the uh, incidental uh, blockage, uh, the pipe is your artifact. The, the the drain is you, you the human and machine specimen. Uh, the river basin is the uh, is the natural uh, counterpart of the, your example. In the river basin, I grew up on the Danube, um, and I've been observing as a kid going fishing. The river basin gets the tree log out of the way. Tree logs do block, uh, block the, uh, the flow, as does the sunken ship. Right. But the river, because it is free to morph, uh, because it is alive as a flow architecture, as a sign, as a thing that impresses you, um, has the, uh, the, uh, the natural, um, the intrinsic property of, uh, of evolving to flow more easily. So what about arteries? Like, arteries? Know, yeah, like people. Same park. thing. The artery also uh, does its best until uh, it's old enough to, uh, to, to, to split, to, uh, to uh, basically cause uh, an aneurysm, to do all sorts of. But it seems to have gone from, you know, when you're younger, your arteries are, there's more free flow. <laughs> so the evolution there seems to be from more free flow okay, to no. less. And that's what. No, no. The life of a human being is not evolution. It's called growth. Most, many people in science confuse the life of the individual with the evolution of the species. No, evolution is about not the... Not sure we confuse it. Huh? That's, that's what we think is, is, right? It's part and parcel. A single organism is, an, is one instance out of a vast evolutionary landscape, right? And it's, it's playing... So I, you know, I, have, I hear, are, are you suggesting that there's agency in a river or in our arteries. I mean, that's the sort of, I, I hear that in the language, but I'm not sure agency. that's what you're suggesting. Okay. What is your definition of agency? I mean, really, the dictionary definition of agency. <laughs> well, you no, I'm asking you. Are you no, saying? No, but you use the word. <laughs> <laughs> you use the word. Well, is the, is, the river, is the river somehow deciding? No, no, agency doesn't mean that. Uh, agency is, uh, is, a, uh, is essentially power. Power, which is, um, uh, that that makes uh, action possible. Agency is not about uh, the direction in which the uh, design change happens because of the power that is used. The direction of the change in uh, flow architecture because of that power you brought up the engines earlier, um, that, is a, that is actually the phenomenon of evolution, which is of all physics, and which is uh, summarized by the constructor law of physics, which is really the statement that everything that is, uh, that is finite size, not uh, quark or infinitesimal or invisible, finite size, including the celestial bodies, um, has the, uh, uh, in order to persist, which is to, uh, to uh, that means to live in physics, uh, it must evolve freely, freely to, uh, uh, toward greater access, uh, or in your example of the universe, toward the faster, uh, route to uh, equilibrium, which means death. But okay. why then, in a biological or an evolutionary context then, I mean, that if you take it back to looking how evolution works, 
why are there then unoccupied ecological spaces? Because is that if you, I mean, we just did with my students, we just did something for an exhibit that we want to do. And you can look at uh, like a three-axis graph of, of what? What? a three-axis projection of, a, of a bird eggs, for instance. And you can, like one axis is size, one axis is shape, and the other axis is color. Okay. The third is what? Color. Color. Yeah. And if you would look at it, that from, if you'd say, yeah, you know, that evolution is a great optimizing thing, you would expect that the whole kind of thing would be filled in universally, but it's not. There's big empty spaces in a lot of it. Right. Of where there are just unoccupied ecological spaces. And, I mean, that's just one example. I mean, people have recognized that for a long time. And that then once in a while, some major evolutionary event happens. I mean, previous to about uh, 325 million years ago, there was nothing that weighed over 20, 25, 30 grams that flew. And then all of a sudden is that uh, flying reptiles, pterosaurs evolved, and then also birds evolved uh, then you know, later on. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that was unoccupied ecological space that, op that became filled in and right. because of you know, whatever happened. But nevertheless, is that uh, it's very, you know, it, it just doesn't go with this kind of thing, that there's always just this undercurrent I, of. I, I can respond to you by speaking a language that the most people know, which is that of looking at the river basin uh, morphology, the map. Uh, the, uh, the wetland, the rain keeps falling, is, uh, is wide open. But the river channels, all hierarchical, happen only in uh, some places. There is lots of space that's not invaded by, uh, I mean, design, you call it design space, where, uh, okay, or for that matter, energy landscape. Uh, there are lots of, most of it is actually not bathed. And the reason is that um, in order to, uh, to uh, bathe with flow an area or a volume, the easiest, meaning the greatest access to the entire space is offered by a vasculature. A vasculature. This is why uh, all these things that come up um, are happening. You mentioned uh, repetitive DNA uh, in this uh, theoretical uh, infinite space of uh, DNA uh, combinations. The reason is that uh, uh, all uh, uh, DNA is not equal, just like the words in a language. Uh, most of us speak basically a, a hierarchy of words, uh, all of them very few. It's, called, um, it's much smaller the number than the main vocabulary, uh, because that is the, uh, the way to speak uh, easiest and the way to communicate with everybody else uh, the fastest. Uh, so uh, you talk about uh, these things that look uh, the same, that have two eyes. Well, they had no eyes before the, uh, the Cambrian explosion. No, but, but, then, but they're still limited by like their singular uh, history. Is it all life's I'm, descended from a common ancestor? I'm, so I'm, we're stuck with that. But let, me, let me just say one more thing, which is the punchline. So when uh, the, uh, the, the eye occurred, uh, obviously two eyes were better because the world is flat. These, uh, these uh, beings were uh, uh, perceiving the ambient, which is flat, okay? The two eyes oriented this way, not this way. And uh, the, uh, that's right, and as soon as that happened, uh, movement became uh, immensely uh, easier, uh, easier, safer, farther, just like after the invention of radar in, uh, in uh, military aviation. And so that's why you talked about the nature uh, optimizing things. That's why this uh, trait uh, stayed. 
the uh, traits that are in fact uh, um, inferior to existing alternatives do not stay. What works is kept. That's, uh, that's evolution. And it's uh, a random up to a point. In I fact, know, that's I, kind I, of weird view. Yeah, <laughs> I, find, I find it hard to. I mean, you know, and that, and that example of you know why are the you know I mean we had there was bilateral symmetry in organisms I think before complex eyes evolved. So I mean there are other whole other reasons for that. I, I, I I'm not an expert in evolution, yeah. but well, I mean, like yeah, yeah. And in terms of the repetitive DNA. Um, Talking about the re, you know the reason that exists in the genome. Certainly, not all organisms have the degree of repetitive DNA that mammals have, um, but it's thought that that's the result of um, you know, viral elements, viral DNA that um, you know that actually come and insert um, genomic elements that will copy DNA over and over, and that's what they do for a living. So, a viral infection into your genome can result in many of those events. So. You know, I think most people consider that to be a random, random process. Yeah, I mean, like birds, for instance, have tiny genomes compared to mammals, and yes. their ancestors, crocodiles, have genomes which are not ancestors, but the closest living group to them, have genomes which are far larger than birds are. Look, uh, there is uh, the river basin that has no genome, yet it looks uh, just like the human lung. Okay, so yeah, but that's, but that's, that's not that has nothing to do with it because it's like right. that. It's, it doesn't have a singular history. It's not related to every other every other river basin in the planet. And I think that's an example of so people who study complex systems always talking. I mean, I'm sure you know this. They talk about uh, scaling laws, for example, okay. that exist across all sorts of things. So there are scaling laws um, in biology between body mass and metabolism, right. right? And it's across all organisms, and it's probably it's a result of some approximate optimization process, but it's still playing out over billions of years of evolution. It's the same scaling law that exists in language, right? It's a thing called the Zipf law, right? It's, it's the f word use frequency versus, you know, the... the, the I, so, it, you know, these are all... I think, as a physicist, I would say that a lot of what you're talking about, the rivers and, and so on, yes, there are similarities to biological systems, but they're for, they're for slightly different reasons. They're not because of inherited traits Right? Uh, They're because of, and this is perhaps gets back to the universal idea of, of design, that there are these, these emergent scaling laws, these emergent relationships because of the underlying nature of systems driven by you know, finding their way through some energy landscape of optimization, of efficiency, and so on, right? I mean, the same, I think these scaling rules also apply to a circulatory system. I right. And things like the species area curve, how many, how many species you find in you know, one square meter versus 100 square meters. I, right. Let me try to clarify the, uh, the words we speak. Uh, these, these scaling laws that you mentioned are not laws of physics. They are com compact mathematical summaries, also known as correlations of observations. Mm -hmm. The law of physics is the purely mental viewing that empowers one to predict such correlations. And that is what I do. And uh, along the way, what I predict is not only the correlations and all these things you bring up, including ZIF. Um, I predict why and at what point the so-called correlation should break down 
uh, because yes, there is a scaling load to uh, the many, many uh, ramifications in the human lung, but with a construct law, I predict that the cutoff should be 23 uh, branching levels. That is the power of a law of physics. So yes, most of my colleagues uh, use uh, the word law when in fact they're talking about a, uh, a, uh, a, an empirical activity, which is that of uh, making a more compact, a huge volume of observations. Uh, the law of physics uh, does that one better. It uh, makes even more compact a huge number of these uh, correlations. I'm just going to go back to something previous. You said you disagreed about the fine-tuning, so I would Ooh, want to fine hear your, tuning, yes. yeah, your, your take on it. And then. Well, I mean, maybe would, would it be useful if you explain, do you want to explain a little bit what okay, fine-tuning so, is, and then I okay, can... Okay, so what's been discussed pretty much since the 70s um, has been what's called anthropic fine-tuning, and that the universe is, in many ways, the fundamental structure um, precise, um, precisely set so that life can exist at least somewhere in the universe. Okay, and I usually like to refer to that kind of life as what I call embodied conscious agents, which would be a generalized version of what um, we are. And so um, you could do this on different levels. There's the laws of nature, the very general principles like the law of gravity or that um, unlike charges repel each other and there has to be the right set of those. If you like pulled off the law of gravity, there weren't any law of gravity, there wouldn't be any um, masses when clumped together, and obviously you wouldn't get highly complex um, beings like us, and wouldn't also be stars, which are the energy sources form. And then another, the post-discussed area of this is on what they call the fundamental parameters of physics. So those would be like, um, the mass of the proton, or even more fundamental than that, is the mass of the up and down quarks, which compose the proton. Um, uh, other examples would be the strength of gravity as not just the strength on any given planet, but that constant g in Newton's law that F equals g, um, the mass, first mass times the second mass divided by the distance between us, them squared that that's a, there's a number for that, and you can express that, for those who've had physics training, you can express that in what's called dimensionless units. You don't actually have to refer to units there. But anyhow, it's a number that gives the strength of gravity. There's a number that gives the strength of the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, et cetera. And um, those have to be precisely adjusted over vast ranges of possibilities in order to have a universe that allows for what I would say would be state life, more generally stable, reproducible complexity. And I can give more examples than yeah, those, no, but there's lots of examples you can give. But that's yes, the general uh, idea. Right, and I think yeah, what is so, in, and I'll, I'll get to why I sort of made my squeak about objecting. Okay. Um, what's so interesting about that is, as part of this topic of you know, design in nature is that it does, it, it could be construed to mean that everything was set up, as you say, to be just so in order to enable the production of things like stars in the cosmos, which in turn produce heavy elements in just the right abundancies to ultimately make planets with chemical compositions that allow for the sort of complexity that life can emerge from. And 
you know, I, and I've been interested in that for a while. And, and what's so interesting to me, actually, is that now we come back and look at it with a little more scrutiny, uh, and, I, and I'll explain this as well, that you know, that fine-tuning is probably not so fine at all, which negates some of this idea that the universe is perfect for life or, or just you know, appears to be perfect for that one instance of you know, cognizant life that you talk about. So I, so I have two things to say, and one is to do with people's investigations of that quite recently that seem to suggest the universe is not fine-tuned particularly well. And the other piece of it is I think you can flip it around and, and you know, it's predicated on the notion of life being a very particular thing, right? Carbon-based organisms somewhat like us. And the truth is we don't know whether you can build life out of other building blocks or not. Suppose you can. Suppose life can be more general as a phenomenon. It can be it can come together out of any set of building blocks that allow for sufficient complexity. Right? Maybe that's, I mean, I, everybody always says silicon, but silicon probably isn't a very good element to be <laughs> involved in, in this, but it could be. Uh, you know, then that could conceivably change the perception of the universe being particularly well fine-tuned. Um, but I just wanted to say, and this is why I sort of, you know, got excited when you mentioned it, yeah. that, um, you know, so there has been recent work on this from the physics end, I, you may well be aware of it, that, for example, you mentioned the relative strength or the strength of gravity. Right. Right. And so one of those dimensionless quantities is the, the strength of gravity to the strength of electromagnetic forces. Mm -hmm. that, that ratio has been deemed in the past as something that if that was changed just a little bit, you couldn't make things like stars, right? Because a star is essentially a, a competition between gravity and electromagnetic forces. It's in a, a, a sort of dynamic equilibrium as matter comes together. Um, and so the argument has been, well, if you changed gravity a little bit or you changed electromagnetism a tiny bit, you just wouldn't make stars and all that then follows. Uh, but recent investigation of that suggests that in fact you could still make stars even if you change the strength of electromagnetism by maybe a factor of a thousand and if you change the strength of gravity the g constant by up to a million or maybe even 10 million that that space that parameter space still allows for stars to form in the universe now they might be different than the stars we're used to. They might be much bigger, um, but they would still go through the same cycle of nuclear fusion and element production. Um, and to me, that's really interesting, if that's true, because it means that at least one piece of these, the fine-tuning argument, I know there are other right. factors to that, other fundamental properties that, if you tweak them a little bit, would be seemingly problematic, but, but that suggests to me that it's, it's, first of all, maybe the universe isn't particularly well-tuned for life as we know it. I mean, we don't actually know, because we've only got the one instance that we know about right here on the Earth. Um, so we don't know whether this is a fertile universe or not a fertile universe. And that, to me, would change, you know, suppose, suppose 500 years ago, or, or 400 years ago, first telescopes yeah, we just saw life everywhere. Everybody had big neon signs out 
across the universe saying, we are here, you know, what are you up to? Oh yeah, Renaissance, lovely. We had that, you know, a thousand years earlier. Um, then we'd have lived with a universe replete with living organisms, and I'm not even sure we, the question would come up that the universe was fine-tuned. If, if what? I didn't quite catch your last scenario. Suppose, suppose the universe, we knew, we had known that the universe was packed with life. Okay. That there were planets everywhere and all of them had life and it was all sophisticated, technological, it had evolved in many different ways and so on. I just wonder whether we'd even ask the question. And the thing is, we don't know whether how fertile the universe is. So sorry, I'm, I'm loading this so with lots of... One thing I want to say, okay, we'll start with the response to your second point you made about assuming carbon-based life, most of the arguments actually don't. For example, the fine-tuning of the cosmological constant, which governs the expansion rate of state, space, that's simply, if it wasn't within a very small range, typically estimated as one part in 10 to the 120th power, very, very small number, that the universe would expand too rapidly for galaxies and stars to form, so there just wouldn't be planets, there wouldn't be stars, and then you're not even going to get any kind of complexity. Or if, if you looked at the level of laws, if you didn't have like the strong nuclear force was long-range force, wasn't just right, you wouldn't have atoms. And concerning your case, so first of all, I'd say the, the more general, if somebody's correctly formulating this, most cases won't involve are not simply focused on carbon-based life. There was that case with Fred Hoyle initially with the carbon and oxygen, um, but most of them aren't. And um, the second thing, in the example you mentioned of the star, I don't, I don't think that, that it's just whether stars could exist or not was dealt with the gravitational constant of fine structure constant. It wasn't just a matter of whether stars could exist, but whether they would have the you know, right temperature, last long enough for life to exist. And there's also, if you change those, there's planetary effects, like sure. the ability to retain an atmosphere if you increase the strength of gravity. Fairly easy to show that um, you're forced into increasing the surface force on a planet to retain an atmosphere. And so, you know, gravity is very weak as a force. It's, it's in, if you did it in dimensionless units, about 1 in 10 to the 38th power of the strong nuclear force. And if you increase gravity by, let's say, um, a thousandfold, then only planets have 30 times the surface force strength of experience. It would be less, a lot less, I think, ideal for our kind of life. So... I, I, so I think yeah. you can, the argument actually can, when you start talking about the conditions being even optimal, you get, you might even be able to get light, but it's going to be, as you increase the surface force, it's going to be a lot harder to do much of anything. So I, I yeah, I would agree that figuring out all these secondary ramifications right. is tough, right? And it may be that you would eliminate regions of this expanded parameter space. Um, but no, I mean, the example I gave, that, that range, and I'm, I'm sorry, this is getting into sort of horribly specific yeah, sort of physics, specific. so we should veer off of, from this again. Um, that, that range I gave for um, the strength of gravity, strength of electromagnetism, is the range from which you would derive um, sufficiently long-lived stars 
with the right sort of properties to produce, as far as we can tell, I mean, you'd have to run a lot of nuclear right. physics simulations, a, an abundance of heavier elements not so dissimilar that, to what we have at the moment. Um, no, I mean, I raised it not, not really just to sort of attack right, right. this idea, but it's interesting to me that, you know, and maybe this almost relates to what you were saying, I mean, it, 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 we impose design on things, right? That's us. The universe may have nothing to do with that, <laughs> right? We we tend to impose design more than anything else. Here's not imp this is, would be you just look at the range of physically possible values, and then you look at those values that are, allow for complexity. And some of them are very straight, much more straightforward. You don't have to run the kind of simulations, which would be like the cosmological constant. Yeah, I mean, I think the cosmological constant, constant is a good one. It's much more straightforward. Yeah, right, right, right. And the other ones are the planetary yeah. effects of changing gravity are pretty straightforward. But if we bring it back to this idea of just how messy all this stuff is, basically. I mean, the, the best example of that is, I mean, even if you bought into the creator kind of stuff that Adam and Eve, everything, I mean, just look around. We all look different. We wouldn't because DNA, DNA replication is incredibly messy. And that there's, uh, that, you know, all of these things, whether it's, you know, talking about things within the aspect of the, the beginning of the universe uh, to, like, you know, things that, like, you know, E. coli mutating in Petri dishes around the, the, uh, the city in different labs. I mean, that there's, there's a lot of messiness and a lot of stochastic kind of things that just happen to all of these things. And if it weren't messy, we wouldn't be here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me contribute. I Go think ahead. she was. Oh, no, I was just going to yeah, add to that. And we, as I think you're saying, are predisposed to see the design and everything, even if it's even if it's created by random processes, um, with you know additional constraints on top. And that's um, that's part of not just our brains, but animal brains in general that are designed to look for pattern. Um, that itself is adaptive. Because the, uh, the the brain or any other um, uh, such uh, organ is uh, finite sized and it can only do this little in order to enable the moving uh, vehicle. Uh, I've been uh, listening to I your, your I thought discussion. that we don't use a lot of our brain. Well, uh, so if you say it's too small, why don't we use more of it? No, the point I'm making is that from uh, one generation to the next, uh, we, uh, we uh, were exposed to uh, more uh, information, more observations, reams and reams of this. And uh, of course, we absorb it in the forms of principles and the correlations, but not um, uh, number by number in the immense volumes of tables of data. Uh, we uh, we become uh, more knowledgeable through uh, through hierarchical compression, not through uh, mindless accumulation of volume. That was the point I was making. Uh, I want to, to uh, contribute this discussion because several points were made here. Um, the first of all, uh, I. I was learning from the exchange between the two of you, which is basically about physics. Uh, the topic today is design in nature, which is something that is familiar to everyone. It's something for us mortals here, uh, somewhere halfway between the, uh, the stars and the uh, protons and the quarks. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, many people, uh, as you implied, um, uh, equate the uh, the quark, the proton, and the infinitesimal with a quote, uh, even more fundamental. <coughs> uh, smaller does not mean more fundamental. Fundamental fundus in Latin means at bottom. 
uh, look at the Statue of Liberty. The pedestal is bigger than the statue. The, uh, the, the thing, or the fired brick in, uh, in Roman architecture is, uh, is finite size. You can kill a man with it. And it is fundamental, because before that, uh, the, 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 the buildings were really, really miserable and crumbling, earthquakes and so forth destroyed all, most of them. But not after the fired brick. Uh, you have these vaults, you have architecture uh, of a different kind. Uh, after the fire brick came the, uh, the uh, steel reinforced concrete uh, all over this country, skyscrapers and uh, iron bridges, okay? Uh, so that's fundamental. A, um, a, a, a finite size uh, elemental construct, this thing, the, the brick, the steel in the, in the cement, uh, these are um, fundamental because they are literally at the bottom of uh, lots of things, not if, if everything. So in, in science, unfortunately, uh, language <laughs> uh, basically has a life of its own. Some words are so uh, useful that they end up being used, actually misused, in, uh, in other places. Uh, the uh, life um, carbon-based. Of course, that's uh, the view if you uh, equate the design of nature uh, uh, only with, uh, with, uh, with animals, with the, with the biosphere, you see. Um, but uh, design of nature is, uh, is general. It's not about that. And uh, so there's a famous question, uh, what is life? And um, I think the answer is very easy if you know thermodynamics. Because in thermodynamics, this is the part of physics that uh, had to be born after the, uh, the steam engine, the, 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 the heat engine, 200 years ago. Um, thermodynamics, actually, uh, Maxwell in, uh, in Cambridge. Uh, one of the, the key concepts in, uh, in physics is that of uh, the dead state. Death is uh, resolved as, a, as an answer to a question in physics. Dead means in a system, which means this that you're discussing, uh, that system is in the dead state if in it nothing moves. That also means nothing morphs, nothing changes. Well, the antonym of that is, uh, is the live state of a system. It is a system in a, uh, in a state uh, occupied by, by flow, meaning movement, and the change, change in configuration. I mentioned earlier, change cannot happen without freedom to, to change. Uh, that's another uh, basic concept in, uh, in uh, physics. Process means change, change of state from this uh, um, being of, uh, say, the pot of water to this other being of the pot of water. Um, and um, so all these things together, Taking us from what everybody uh, understands and accepts, which is uh, dead state in physics, life state, the antonym of the first, and then change in state, which happens because of freedom. That change is evolution. And the direction of that change is uh, not the haphazard. It is in one direction, uh, which is uh, that of, um, uh, okay, changes that, uh, that uh, facilitate uh, the occurrence of uh, configurations that offer greater access or um, all the way to um, more efficiency, to um, smarter economics, to uh, faster speech or cheaper communicating between entities that want to communicate or uh, the fact that uh, it is, it's called economies of scale, the fact that it's easier to move uh, as a group, not in, as individuals. And on and on and this is the uh, the river water, the uh, two uh, two people entering the stadium. Uh, it's it's this is physics. It's everything 
showing the same tendency to morph and to surprise the observer with, oh, surprisingly, the same kind of pattern. Pattern is not, uh, is not design. Uh, design is a flow configuration with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with freedom, but also with a message. Uh, I get the impression the way you talk is that all of these questions that are being raised and all of the debates that are happening, that you seem to present it as if you already have all the answers. <laughs> and I'm a little bit puzzled by that because obviously these are unsettled issues. Uh, well, look, since you put it that way, I have to respond right away. Uh, the, uh, that goes without saying, okay? <laughs> no. <laughs> On the contrary, uh, I'm, I'm the ignorant uh, who, uh, who came to this uh, uh, very old and big um, uh, table of uh, discussion. I'm talking about in physics, in the biology. I'm from engineering. I'm, uh, I'm a person who uh, basically was not supposed to be uh, here. Uh, but it so happens. You are here. <laughs> no, I'm talking about I'm there. in. About uh, in uh, I, I, uh, it is only now that I publish, meaning 20 years ago, I published in physics and biology. Previously, I was uh, preaching to the choir. Uh, my, uh, my peers in engineering uh, get it. Uh, get it. They, they are simply not invited to discussions on design, even though the, uh, the word uh, meaning design is, uh, is what uh, people do. Incidentally, the, uh, this thing with the signum in Latin, uh, then it became uh, disegno in Italian. We, uh, the West got uh, uh, the science uh, that we uh, cherish today from uh, the Renaissance. That's how we really got it. And then through the French, dessin. Uh, so it means the sign. It doesn't mean the act of uh, designing something and making it. That's something totally different. Uh, design happens. And, uh, but uh, to, to, to finish your point, um, when I started to talk about uh, the, uh, the, the physics of evolution in this most general sense, not as uh, chemistry of carbon, okay? In the most general sense, I, um, I was surprised to, uh, to hear from my peers, those who came to the constructor law from physics and biology, that, uh, that what I'm telling them from my direction or, uh, is in fact uh, uh, not only familiar to them, but uh, it covers what uh, the contemporary scientists uh, regard as known in their various uh, compartments, like uh, departments on a campus that do not talk to each other. So that's the well, reason. I think he questions it. Well, I want to go back to a previous comment, okay. and uh, this comment uh, you made about um, that the brain is programmed to see design in nature. Now, one could take that as. Um, the brain is programmed to mislead us because there's not near as much design in nature as the brain seems to want to think. And in certain areas, that's certainly um, true. But I would want to point out that um, the whole, from the time of the scientific revolution, you can, I could cite Morris Klein on this, who said the assumption everybody was making was that um, Nature, since the time of the Pythagoreans, that nature was mathematically designed, meaning mathem in particular mathematically put together to realize elegant, elegance ma mathematics. Sure. And that, during the last century, ever since then, has been just enormously fruitful. You have people like um, Paul Dirac, 
one of the major founders of quantum mechanics says, you know, the equation must be beautiful. It's more important than an even match experiment because sometimes when they perceive beauty in the equations and they seem to conflict with the experiment, later it turned out to be correct. That was Einstein's approach. It was, um, look, he would actually, as major biographer said, he would think of, even though he didn't believe in a theistic God, he would think to himself, um, if I were God, what would I do? In other words, how would be the most beautiful mathematics to put this together? And that was a, um, a guide for him. And has been a continual guide and a very successful one. So I wouldn't want to make the inference that our brain being, um, I think we have to resist the inference, that means it's going to mislead us. It's actually amazing that that kind of idea has been so successful. The, uh... At an area we wouldn't expect it because if, if it was programmed to, for reproductive success to see design and everything and to see these elegant patterns, um, we wouldn't initially expect it to work at the underlying level when the mathematics is, like, is far removed I you from what we see not be as on the as everyday level. Did I misunderstand you that some of the mathematical beauty may not be as uh, well, no, I mean, I, no, I think there is there's enormous beauty in this context for mathematics. And, I, and I, yeah, I think it's a very interesting point that you raise. And that as you were talking, I was thinking about this and thinking, okay, so, so why do we do this? Why do our brains do this? Is it because, you know, again, we've evolved, presumably like other species, and our the, so that our brains brains are part of a, a data processing system, right? And we're bombarded by millions of pieces of information all the time for every nerve ending, everything we see, everything we hear, smell, you know, pheromones that are floating around in this room that, that trigger all sorts of things. And it's a lot to handle, right? But, you know, there's a tiger waiting to eat me over there, so I'd better make some good judgment decisions and and I just I you know this is a very naive way of thinking about it I I suspect but is that does that seem like a plausible reason why we we see patterns we see beauty in certain equations there was a, there was some report very recently talking about the study of people doing math and I think even looking at fMRI scans why they were solving mathematical puzzles and getting that that pleasure I don't know if it was dopamine or whatever um, does that make sense and yeah, I'll just mention as a, um, a, a quick example from fish um, obviously where our, our brains are uh, more complex and, and understanding our predispositions is more complicated but uh, there's a very lovely uh, long-term study of guppies in Trinidad. And um, these guppies, I'm sure a lot of you have had um, guppies as pets. They have these beautiful tails, very colorful. And the tails are, the, the, uh, the males have the colorful tails, and it's thought that these are you know, to attract females. Um, the females choose the males based on the color of the tails, which are kind of this bright orange color in this particular area. And... Um, so for a long time, the research was completely focused on why the, you know, the females prefer these beautiful, colorful tails. It's lovely. They look, they look designed, right? Um, and then some smart team came along and thought to examine what the guppies were eating. And it turned out that the, uh, these guppies prefer um, 
these orange berries that fall into the river that have a very similar um, color and pattern to the males' tails. So it turned out the females, uh, at some neurological level, had a preference for orange, for this bright orange color of the males' tails. And that, on an evolutionary timescale, got translated into a preference for males with these bright orange tails. So something that looks completely you know, unrelated How turns does out. Does that apply to humans? Yes, good question. <laughs> <laughs> so, <I am> <laughs> well, maybe somebody with a, yeah. So how does that connect up with our brains being programmed to see elegance and beauty? Just that the there may be, um, at an evolutionary time scale, some, um, some predisposition due to you know, selective forces that um, we don't see around us anymore, um, but that it may have been part of our, our evolutionary history. But then, you know, it, still, it still would be the case that why would we expect that to work when in areas that are so far removed from what helps us you know, in our long evolutionary past survive, namely at this fundamental mathematical level, which is actually very abstract. That's why people have mm. a lot of difficulty learning quantum mechanics or general relativity, because the mathematics is far different from even, it, it's a difficulty explaining how we can even do mathematics in the normal, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, people have worked on that. But that's the ordinary counting, you know, fractions. This sort of mathematics is very far removed, and as Eugene Wigner wrote a famous essay on this, as he pointed out, it's chosen, the mathematics is chosen for its elegance and fruitfulness mathematically in being able to, let's say, solve equations. Mm -hmm. And so why would it work so well there? That's, that's the puzzle I'm pointing to. But I guess, I mean, you know, quantum mechanics didn't suddenly arrive prepackaged, right? I mean, to do quantum mechanics, you have to know imaginary numbers, right? You have to know wave equations, and you have to know you know, Fourier transforms, all these sorts of stuff. I mean, mathematics, as we have it today, is itself the product of an evolutionary process where people saw these little elegant pieces. And so I'm just wondering whether, you know, it now looks, yeah, we, we see the beauty in a piece of quantum mechanics mathematics, but that beauty wasn't arrived at like that. No, it wasn't, right? but, but the mathematics, using that mathematics with the complex numbers, was developed before the arrival of quantum mechanics, and it's essential, um, either that or something right, isomorphic right, right. to it is essential right. for quantum mechanics, and that was developed because it was enormously fruitful, and complex numbers are a real number plus uh, an imaginary number, which you can think of as the square root of negative one. And so they were developed because it was enormously, one reason you can solve like um, third order or more, or any polynomial using the imaginary numbers, but you can't using the real numbers, there's no, um, and so they were normal, um, enormously fruitful algebraically and in other ways. And it was developed all independently, yet this, for, for aesthetic reasons, because of its mathematical fruitfulness, and yet, that's just the system that nature is um, the mathematics that suits nature. I, I wanted to just, you, you didn't finish your point about the fish. No, I was, it was pretty much finished. Yeah, <laughs> but, so um, yeah I'm hoping the, that somebody that knows a little bit more conclusion. about the human brain could, you know, take it a little further. The, the, the conclusion being that in terms of what was making the female fish choose that, that that was 
so the, was not words, a, really a design. Was was more something else. Right. There was a predisposition that looked to us to be sort of design related at first glance, but turned out to have um, a deeper evolutionary history um, that that shaped shaped this preference uh, based on food. <laughs> yeah. All right. So so yeah. So the ability, maybe the you know. The, the thrill of adding two numbers together is <laughs> related somewhere in our deep evolutionary history to the ability to think, oh, if I go over there, I get two berries instead of one berry, right? Well, I mean, yeah. I think, uh, you know, one of our colleagues at Columbia, Eric Kandel and stuff, is like that, uh, you know, he's made his career, he won his Nobel Prize, just on the basis of uh, how that every single interaction you ever have, everything you ever look at, not just changes your brain chemically, it changes it physically, is that new synapses become uh, you know, larger and hotter, and that, you know, that there's been a huge amount, I mean, basically we know about the brains of three things, kind of, we know some about human, we some, know some about mouse, we know a little bit about sea elegans, if you want to say they have a brain or not, and then a little bit about zebrafish, but uh, certainly, I mean, they've been able to demonstrate that in some experimental organisms as well. So, like that, you know, we can talk about this comp this set of complex mathematics, but these are relatively new things that are basically you know things that have come since Newton's time, and that uh, so our brains, when we look at mathematics today, look fundamentally different than somebody who would have thought about those same sorts of problems before those mathematics were different. And not just in a chemical way of just studying and understanding it, but in a physical way as well. I want to, uh, to bring the discussion back to uh, uh, design and nature uh, and respond to two things you, uh, you brought up, or actually both of you. Why, uh, why is uh, the brain uh, programmed, you as well, to, uh, to detect pattern? Uh, you see that, by the way, uh, right now in, uh, in the famous story about the NSA uh, using big data in order to discern, uh, okay, patterns that are useful. And that's the answer to your second point about uh, beauty, okay? Uh, why is the pattern useful to the NSA? So that uh, the government could act faster in the direction of uh, protecting all of us. The same with uh, the animal. Uh, obviously, uh, one million years after another million, uh, learning that what is uh, good to, for it um, is actually uh, pleasure, because to live is, uh, is the option that we all like, as opposed to becoming the victim. And uh, so beauty in physics is, the, is a um, part of this evolutionary uh, um, uh, design, meaning changes that we make uh, every day in how we move, in order to get going, to go uh, through life uh, easier. We like a simpler equation because we get it and we move on. Um, my best example is why uh, uh, statistically it's been proven that most people like to look at the images uh, shaped like this. Like uh, the business card, where like the uh, computer screen, or like the screen of the cinema, this shape happens to have a uh, length to height ratio uh, approximately the same as the golden ratio. Uh, that's a coincidence. But why do people like this shape? Why? Because this is the, sh the area that's the easiest, the fastest to scan with two eyes. Okay. Uh, this is the animal uh, in, the, in the business of surviving and getting out of the way of the predator and looking at the, uh, the world, which is flat. This is why the animal has uh, two eyes on the horizontal. And by the way, the area, uh, the ocular area of the two eyes 
uh, is a, an area approximated by this shape. And that is then the beauty, which goes hand in hand with locomotion and with, uh, with greater access and with, uh, with the survival. So you have the intangibles like beauty as of course all the way to economics that actually belongs in physics, belong in physics. Is, is, so, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just wondering, can anybody comment on the evolutionary biologists um, on Simon Conway Morris's thesis? I'm just wondering what, because that's, I think, very relevant to the discussion here of that, um, that the built-in constraints already there from physics, chemistry, et cetera, um, makes certain, almost inevitable certain kinds of organisms. So he's bucking the idea of, particularly popularized by Stephen Jay Gould, that if you ran the evolutionary tape over again, you'd get very, very different types of life forms, and that it would be a miracle to get, a miracle in the sense of being very, a very, very improbable occurrence to get beings like us with our level of intelligence. But he thinks that the evidence of convergence, um, things like the compound eye occurring independently many different times in evolutionary history um, indicate that these sorts of things are much more inevitable than we once thought. So there is a sort of inevitable set of patterns that are going to occur in nature um, despite a lot of the, the accidental character of mutations. And I'm wondering what you think of that thesis and any comments you have on I it. I would certainly agree with uh, Simon on that one because, I mean, I think that the evidence of convergence is so great that we can see that the same kinds of teeth of uh, occurring in different kinds of vertebrates who eat similar kinds of things that are totally unrelated from one another. We see that the same kinds of... Uh, you know, what I was alluding to before of these empty ecological spaces that are occurring in lots of different groups, be they insects, be they bats, be they birds, which that occur over and over and over again. I mean, there's something which is just some physical constraint which is keeping it, you know, out of that, you know. So like that, uh, uh, you know, that we see things like that, the sizes and shapes of eggs, something that, you know, that our lab has studied and things that you see that uh, different groups which have you know, lots of different sizes, lots of different kinds of things that they come up with the same shapes all the time. So, like, that they don't go way out of bounds, you know. I mean, that, so it's really, uh, I mean, I think that, uh, that if you ran the evolutionary tape over again, we might not be mammals, we might not be related to things. Maybe we wouldn't exist, but the kinds of biodiversity you see on the planet would be partitioned pretty much the same way. Just like what was partitioned with totally different animals during the Paleozoic period 200 million years ago, and then when that the, the big extinction at the end of the Paleozoic, uh, it came back during the Cretaceous period with the same kinds of reefs, and then it came back again in the Cenozoic as well with the same kinds of reefs. The animals to a non-biologist would look pretty much the same, but they're totally unrelated to one another. So. Uh, I, I, uh, to that, I contribute the, uh, the, uh, the addendum that it's, uh, this thing that you're describing is actually predictable, and it's not only about the population of these beings, but actually uh, the movement of these beings. The locomotion is, in fact, the physics. The shape of the egg is physics. It's predictable. 
the frequency of the egg laying is, is physics and is predictable. Um, and yes, the configuration of animal mass movement on the globe is uh, no different than the, uh, the vascular configuration of uh, the movement of all the other water, which is much older, which is the water in the river basin or the movement of air currents on the, uh, on the surface of the globe. It's hierarchical and um, with design. Uh, I, uh, I did some reading about uh, my colleagues here, and uh, I developed the questions. And one is uh, for, to you, if you'd like to address it, because time is running short. Would you comment on uh, two things? One, uh, um, I hear my colleagues in academia uh, wringing their hands about uh, the conflict between science and religion, that's one. Mm -hmm. And second, about your own uh, uh, interest and specialty in uh, a theory of atonement. Okay. Oh, well, I think the, uh, I mean, the theory of atonement is going to be somewhat off topic, but if you want me to comment on it, I can. But in terms of the, is there a conflict between science and religion, I would say no, I think um, science and religion, at a deeper level, there's these superficial con conflicts. For example, young earth creationists with their literal interpretation of Genesis is in conflict with um, what we know from um, science that um, human beings, apes, and other creatures are genetically related. So there's a com the common ancestry thesis. But at a deeper level, I think the kind of, let's say, the belief in God in particular, and um, if you want to go more particularly Christian, the belief in the logos, the reason that the world is an intelligible whole and ordered in an intelligible way is deeply consonant with um, science. In fact, most of the people, in fact, all the people who began the scientific revolution believed that and thought that Galileo thought that the universe was written in the language of mathematics, and likewise um, Kepler. But what you have to be careful of is what level you're looking for this, in what level you attribute to chance and what level you attribute to a more fundamental kind of design. For example, Kepler, in he spent um, the early years trying to um, figure out a mathematical order to the actual distance the planets were away from the sun. So we looked for the five platonic solids. And that never worked out because the distance the planets are, that's a matter of chance, not necessity. But their actual elliptical orbits and the speed in which they go, that's a matter of physical necessity. So he finally eventually found the three, Kepler's three laws of motion, which led to Newton. Um, at that point. So I would say, no, there's no, in fact, at a deep level, they're consonant. There's only this superficial um, um, conflict. I'm sorry? To, what um, would you say about that? That sounds good to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think the conflict, but I mean, the, what we get from the okay. popular image is this conflict. And yeah. it was also a thesis promoted by which historian friends of mine say, and people are history, um, in the history of the science and religion, whether or not they're believers or, um, in God or not, um, like Anderson Dixon White, I think he's the pre first president of Cornell University, promoted this perpetual conflict thesis. And the his history was really, really bad history. The footnotes didn't go anywhere. 
Um, and so that, it, from the historian's perspective, it's way more complex than that. There's been skirmishes, but there's also been a lot of support for science from um, the religious community. So it's, 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 it, you know, that, that would be my, religion that would be a main. Well, I, w I would agree with all of this history, absolutely. I mean, someone like Kepler mm. was deeply religious, that's my understanding. Um, but he also felt that that was perfectly compatible with <laughs> this this empirically studied quantitative universe. Um, but I mean, and it even and it he was even capable of taking quite risky steps because my understanding is before Kepler, people assumed that the movement of planets was all in perfect circles. Right. Right. And Kepler took this leap to say, well, maybe they're ellipses. Which is pretty shocking <laughs> for someone who. Well, it was motivated by the there's an idea, of, the underlying idea of, of elegance that heavens were elegantly ordered would give you the perfect circles, the most symmetrical. But he was willing to break that. But it was still that underlying idea of an elegant order to the universe. It's just you can't be, you can't get too fixated on a certain version of that. I mean, Einstein got fixated on a certain version of that and never could really accept quantum mechanics. So, um, and sometimes a religious motivation um, can be very helpful. I mean, the developer um, Lemaitre, who developed the, he developed the Big Bang Theory, um, was religious. And it was people like Fred Hoyle who opposed it strongly until the evidence came in in the 1960s. Even then he opposed it. I think he never did accept it. He um, couldn't imagine the universe having a beginning, but somebody from a kind of theistic perspective, that was much easier to imagine. Einstein couldn't imagine the universe having a beginning, and that's why he introduced originally the cosmological constant to, make, to get an eternal universe. So in that particular case, you can see that actually the religious belief actually helped the acceptability of that, the Big Bang Theory. So you are saying that on a, on a surface level, uh, religion and science may seem not compatible, but on a deeper level, they are compatible. Right. How are they compatible? They're, I mean, on the idea of theism, that's what I was saying, the idea that there's a God who created the universe and intelligence behind it would lead you to expect that there would be in the structure of the universe would be intelligible. Um, it would lead you to expect it would be an elegant, elegantly structured at a fundamental level. So, and that we could understand it. And that's been a mainstay of science is that we could actually understand the universe, which wasn't given to us, that we, um, most cultures didn't assume we could really understand the underlying nature of things. But how would you, I mean, how would you ever, like, as a scientist, I mean, you work in two, two domains. You work in right. mathematics, where you work with mathematical proofs. Then you work within the construct of an observationalist, which you test hypotheses. How is the idea of God a testable hypothesis? I mean, how would you test that? Well, I mean, the, the thing is you're demanding that um, everything, all, you're, what you're assuming is all knowledge is scientific knowledge, and all the hypotheses you have about the world can be... Um, gained by science. I mean, the simple refutation of that is your own consciousness. You'll never get to your own consciousness by a scientific study. You know you're conscious because you're aware. 
Um, I'm not sure I know my conscience. Well, assuming you're conscious, okay. So, or moral, um, if you hold the moral truths, you're not getting them by means of scientific investigation. So I wouldn't subscribe to God as a scientific hypothesis. I think that's a big mistake to do that. Um, so you can't test God to test the God hypothesis. So isn't that a slippery slope when it comes on to other things then and saying, well, this isn't really scientific. It's just well, there, there could be evidence for things without being scientific evidence. I mean, I think you have evidence in mathematics, which is not strictly speaking empirical evidence. There's evidence I mentioned for... But as a formality to it, at least to yeah. prove. So there's a difference between evidence and scientific evidence. Scientific evidence is a narrow one particular area that's been very successful of kinds of evidence, but there's other kinds of evidence or reasons people could have. Let me, let me clarify why I asked you about uh, science and religion. Both, um, both in the evolution of uh, Homo sapiens are add-ons. They are mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, human constructs, things we attach to, to ourselves and vice versa, obviously, in order to live uh, uh, more easily. Uh, science is obviously that. Uh, um, why do you think, now in your own uh, uh, specialty and domain, why do you think um, religion um, was, um, was uh, obviously invented, discovered, and uh, adopted by humans? A long time ago, not, uh, not this monotheism to which you are referring. Um, why is religion useful? Um, That's uh, a useful? very complex question, but I, w I would think it has two questions. It's a huge question. <laughs> but I would say two things. I think people do have a sense of the transcendent, and so and a sense of, so on one side, the philosophical side, they have a sense of the transcendent. They have a sense of moral, um, moral value. And once you have the sense of moral value, if you see, let's say, evil in the world, uh, um, people that commit evil often live better lives than those that do good, then it seems morality in many people's minds require that, you know, the good ultimately are not worse off at least than the evil. The are good better is off. There's a, there's a sort of what happens to a person and what their moral character is eventually must coincide. So then you either get, you know, just on a naturalistic basis from those kind of things, you either get a heaven and hell or a reincarnation system. Um, and then there's a sense of uh, transcendent reality. I mean, that mm -hmm. counting for maybe the order you see in the world, that the world exists at all. But then on the, there's a whole bunch more to religion than that. And there's a lot of then sociological explanations. Religion helps group cohesiveness. And um, we see that throughout the world. So then there's a whole bunch of sociological issues um, that arise. Which is, that, which is, which is, a, which is another big factor you. in religion. And then if you believe in revelation, then there can be you know, the revelatory side. But if you just give a naturalistic or merely philosophical account, I think those are the two, two big ones. And group cohesiveness from an evolutionary perspective is going to help the survival of the group. But but, but there you go. These things, these good things that you're enumerating uh, could be contributed by a uh, lover of science uh, all the way to uh, wonderful mathematics, uh, better engineering, uh, uh, how to build a city, uh, how to, uh, to uh, stay away from danger, you name the place, okay? So the urge, the human urge to, uh, to, to live more easily, safer, longer, 
is uh, in the very beginning, and the earliest version, in my view at least, uh, or knowledge of, uh, of the history of man, uh, the earliest um, way to, uh, to put that uh, urge uh, to use, meaning to use nature, to live with nature, to live with the environment, was, to, uh, to, was, through, was through religion. So I, um, uh, I was curious to know whether, unlike my, many of my colleagues, you, uh, you regard that you think that uh, uh, people in religion should fear science and vice versa, people in science should fear religion. To me, they're all, uh, uh, in fact, uh, human, uh, religion being older. And uh, a religion with science is definitely a much better um, um, uh, add-on than a religion without science. Right, well, I would agree. Religion with science is much better than religion. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go to questions. Please come up to the microphone and... Thanks, Pichan, for the questions. And keep your comments in the form of a question. <laughs> um, how you doing? Um, so the question that I have is, I guess pretty much I kind of like going off the last thing. Um, given the fact that, okay, so the question being, couldn't mathematics itself be quote unquote God, right? And I'm putting in air quotes for a reason. Or couldn't, the no couldn't knowledge itself be quote unquote God? Or couldn't sort of, the idea of like, like what you were saying before in terms of like that transmutative nature of things in and of itself or pattern itself that we sort of assign understanding to, couldn't that in and of itself be God? Like does God necessarily have to be personification or anthropomorphication of what we see. Okay. Like, couldn't the intelligence itself be God? Thank you. You want to tackle oh, well, that? Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle that. I think in the, I mean, the kind of popular image you get of God is a God out there that's a very anthropomorphic image and molding things, etc. I mean, when I think of God, I think of it just as that, an underlying intelligence that grounds everything. So that the idea is, is that if you ask the question, what is, and I know you had comments about fundamental, what's, the, when you go all the way back to reality, what do you find? Is reality ultimately impersonal? Is that the ultimate story? So is it just matter in motion, for instance? Is, or, so, and then consciousness arises out of matter. So consciousness is sort of an epiphenomenon of the material. Or is that consciousness is the most fundamental. And then when you get consciousness, you get mind, usually goes along with it, and will, and intelligence, and um, mathematics has been the conceptualizations of that intelligence. That's one view of, of mathematics. Um, and so in that conception of God, then it's, it's really thinking that it's not a, an anthropomorphic conception of God out there, but a reality, a conscious reality that's underlying and sustaining everything. And so that, that it's, it's a question of which route do you go at the very beginning of what's most fundamental. 
Let me, which leads you in these two different directions. Let me uh, uh, also address your points. First of all, mathematics is not physics. Physics is nature. Physics is uh, what happens. Um, I like uh, the Latin version of it, uh, nature or natura, which is uh, the personification of uh, into a lady who gives birth to everything. So that is physics. Now in the history of science, the uh, description and the reasoning of uh, these things that we see in nature came first, meaning was born out of this uh, natura, as, uh, as geometry. And that was a very cumbersome uh, um, argument to, uh, to, uh, to teach, all the way to uh, the school of uh, Plato. Um, which said, uh, he who cannot uh, do geometry is not allowed to enter. Right. Very difficult. So uh, then uh, it was simplified. Um, uh, algebra, trigonometry, or calculus. So in the beginning, geometric arguments uh, from mm -hmm. Newton. And so mathematics is a, uh, is a evolutionary process of, uh, of simplifying the book of, uh, of physics. That's what it is. So. Uh, no. Uh, English is a much simpler language than, let's say, French and Latin. That's why English now has taken the world, uh, uh, taken over the world. So uh, I would disagree just slightly, kind of make it disagree. I, I, I think in many cases, actually, the mathematics preceded the physics, like I mentioned, the complex numbers. So it wasn't actually useful in physics to quantum mechanics in the 1930s. But um, complex numbers, in fact, I think it goes back to the 17th imaginary numbers in the development of the complex number system in the 18th and 19th century. The Cauchy theorem. Okay. Have to clarify just a second. Okay. Physics. The uh, the name for the discipline is new. It comes from uh, the uh, the second half of the 1800s. Before that, it was called mechanics, and it is as, as old as the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And mechanics is uh, the science of uh, of uh, of uh, figures, bodies. Uh, well, the ones that statically were described as geometry, now these things, the pulleys, the ropes, the, uh, the, the buildings, the making of the buildings was mechanics, the building of the, the ditches and the trenches and the roads. So mechanics is the original name for what I was talking but about. The, but the question was, could mathematics be God? So no. if you say physics preceded mathematics, Physi are you saying physics could be God? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, uh, Einstein said that they're all God's laws. Okay, okay. so that's the end to that. Okay, uh, next question. I'm wondering, in um, considering these difficult questions, whether the panelists are really so sure of themselves as it, as it appears. Um, why is it so difficult people say, I don't really know? It seems obvious to me, given the dispute amongst you all, that no one really knows. But do, do, you, do you have doubts? Or do you really think you're right? That you do know? About what? About what? About, about what? life. Why things are the way they are. Uh, we don't know. The design That's or not. That's for scientists. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'll tell the other people who. Uh, but who I didn't understand the beginning of the question because I don't hear well. Would you speak uh, slowly? Yeah, I'm just wondering how people can be so sure of themselves about why things are the way they are. Uh, oh. Given the arguments and the disputes, and why people can't say, I don't know. Seems like a lot of these questions, people <laughs> they, really don't know, but very few people. They, uh, don't, don't let me, may I share with him a secret? Uh, yes. Yeah, before this meeting started, <laughs> we were having a, a round table in a, in a back room there. 
and uh, Dr. Narcissian, uh, you brought up the fact that uh, most people um, think they know more than they know. <laughs> right. Uh, I wanted to uh, add to that that most professors think they know more than they know. <laughs> Uh, except Adrian, okay? But, <laughs> uh, so uh, that's the way we are, okay? Uh, and very few, very few, uh, except those who are in a hurry to, uh, to go home after a lecture or a conference, say, gee, I don't know. Excellent question, but I, I, I don't know. So it's a useful uh, answer to, to many of these questions. But the urge, the urge to, um, to pursue the question, especially when it arrives so uh, uh, unexpectedly out of a uh, honest uh, audience, uh, that courage is actually uh, uh, very valuable and uh, from me to my students, very, very important to teach because most people uh, do not get it that they're actually free to question authority. Thank um, you. But if you can't propose some experiment that would prove you're wrong or right, make some prediction and say we're going to do some experiment to show it comes out the way I think it does or doesn't do. Why, I, how is that different than you the, 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 the work in the physics theory is full of these examples. Well, in physics uh, theory is, but, but in terms of your theory. My, oh, sure. Uh, here is the story of uh, uh, I predicted the, the evolution of the speed in sports. I predicted it. Uh, that was in the spring of, 90, of 2008. That was uh, months before the Beijing Olympics. I predicted that the, uh, the next winners in sprint and swim will be bigger. Okay. And um, uh, with a mathematical formula, very simple, A equals B kind of formula. Uh, and um, I uh, submitted this as a, as a, later, a letter to Nature um, with a cover letter in which I said, uh, dear editors, uh, my colleagues, please publish this immediately because in just two months from now, this will be shown to be correct. And they, of course, because I'm from engineering, uh, decided not even to review my uh, my, uh, my, uh, my contribution. My contribution was on the rebound published uh, a few months later in the Journal of Experimental Biology in Cambridge, not a uh, lightweight journal, uh, meaning a, uh, a, uh, here are the facts, uh, uh, comparative biology uh, journal. Uh, but in Beijing, in July, um, my prediction turned out to be correct. Uh, I did not uh, predict the names of the winners, but I predicted their sizes and their speeds. You see? But that's not, that, yeah. that's not proving a fundamental right. physical law or... It is, right? as, it just, is, it is as proving in retrospect, meaning in hindsight, that everything that uh, you brought up earlier with the insects and the uh, so-called convergent evolution should be happening uh, this way, that the, the, the bigger should be faster, not just, uh, you know, waving your hands, but in along this, in accord with this precise formula. Uh, that is, um, to predict that it was not questioned in the past is the, uh, the proof that you are waiting. Uh, no, the question, how many predictions did you make that didn't come true that we never heard about? The doctor already comes to the fact that that has not happened yet. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You want to say something about that? No. I do. Do you have time? Um, I, I just have a couple of comments. I really enjoyed this. It's wonderful. I haven't thought this much about these issues since college and until the last election, of course. Um, and I wanted to make a couple of comments and they would raise questions. Um, regarding the existence of God, I think uh, the gentleman in the lighter jacket, I was here late so I don't really have all your names. Um, 
mentioned that you can't test the existence of God unless I got that wrong. And if no. that is if that is true, then how can you describe God? That's one question. Um, you might want to reference uh, a show that Stephen Colbert had a few weeks ago or a few months ago where Ricky Gervais was there and uh, he proposed the following thought experiment which is that if humanity were wiped out or all civilization were wiped out, what would we recreate the same religions or would, would we recreate the same physics and mathematics, uh, which is more likely? And Colbert was, I think, stunned by that, which is impressive considering his deep religious beliefs and his mind. Um, I also wanted to comment on what you mentioned uh, about what I think is synchronicity, which is kind of parallel, uh, well, I guess uh, parallel evolutionary appearances due to different processes. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, and the last thing I want to say is I did some research when I was a resident, I'm a, a pathologist by training, um, that did describe symmetries in biology, which I could discuss with you privately if you're interested, that speak to uh, some very basic primal mathematical principles. I don't think it ever saw the light of day, but it was fascinating. Sorry. Thank you. A lot. So you, the two of you, I think, are questions. Well, I could, I, I think, but I heard you right. You said, if you can't test whether God exists, how can you describe God? Well, I mean, we don't, I can describe God, I have an idea of what consciousness is because I'm conscious, and I have an idea of what being an agent is and knowledge is. So I don't see where you'd have to test something to be able to um, describe it. I could describe on a very, very distant planet that is, what physicists would say, is outside our light cone, which means we'll never be able to determine whether it's there or not. I can describe there's a certain kind of being on the planet, let's say a unicorn, give you a description of the unicorn. So I can describe it without ever being able to test whether that's the case or that there's extraterrestrial intelligence outside our light cone. So I don't see how the two are connected together. I think you'd have to have some sort of access to the properties you're using to describe the thing, but that doesn't require an ability to be able to test whether it exists or not. Would you like to comment? Sure, yeah. Oh, first, I'll just say that I like to think of God as a flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> it's a big movement among evolutionary biologists to recast, uh, yeah, religion of flying spaghetti monster. Um, but with regard to synchronicity and convergence, I mean, one of a, 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 an interesting topic that's come up in evolutionary biology recently um, is trying to understand convergence not just from the framework of... Um, a, of a, a common uh, natural selective force, which is always how, since Darwin, it's been interpreted. When you see two things that look the same, you say, aha, they're under similar uh, adaptive pressure. Um, but now, I think, with, um, with new, um, new tools, genomics, uh, new tools in developmental biology uh, and cell biology, we can start to understand the kind of canalization um, that is the molecular you know, constraints at the molecular level that that drive convergence in in ways that may not be as related to adaptive pressure as we think. Thank you. Any other questions? We uh, oh. It seems to me that all of the members of the panel, with the exception of Prof Prof Professor Bajan 
really successfully avoided the topic at hand. And I think the topic at hand is, it says design in nature, is really, is there design in nature? And what I heard from Professor Bajan was that nature des designs itself, and it does it through the mechanism of evolution which is underpinned by the law of physics. And that means, and that really is something which is in its own way post-creation or post-development in some way. So it still leaves open the question as to whether or not there was design or a designer. How did evolution, how did the law of physics come about? Thank you. Uh, who wants uh, to tackle uh, that? Let, let me, let me <laughs> very brief. In, uh, in my uh, latest book, The Physics of Life, the, uh, the answer to your point is, in, I agree with what you bring up, is that, uh, is, is that um, uh, evolution, which really means uh, changing design with a uh, perceivable, uh, um, discernible direction over time, was uh, uh, on Earth and everything, everywhere else from the beginning. And I just want to follow up It's an evolution of the flow architecture, and the river basin is just uh, one part of it. It's the uh, circuit executed by water in nature. First, uh, there is the, uh, the rain. The rain falls on the ground in the form of droplets. The droplets, while uh, falling down, acquire a shape that uh, tends to uh, minimize drag. In okay, there we go. So that's the first, uh, that, that's the, uh, call it the uh, embryo that gives birth to the river basin. The river basin is the wet mud in the beginning. Then you have the rivulets, and then the, 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 uh, the hill slopes and, and the rivers. And so all the way to the delta, you forgot to mention delta, which is the river basin in reverse, just like the breathing uh, in and breathing out. And then there is uh, what happens to the water uh, from the river basin, either evaporation from the ocean or from the Kalahari Desert, in the case of the Okavango Delta. So, and then the, uh, the evaporated uh, humid air is lighter. It rises with the uh, undulating uh, uh, rivers. You see meandering rivers of plumes, which then uh, circulate on the, on the same uh, world map as, uh, as the winds. Uh, more easily. So this entire. So this is why I actually asked you about atonement. It's about not only the uh, the thing that uh, that uh, you bring up, which is the river basin. It's about the river basin uh, flowing together with everything else, mm -hmm. with uh, the so-called environment or with the nature itself. So the uh, the physics is holistic. The laws of physics are obeyed by anything, everywhere and anytime. And that's why this discussion, this topic, I uh, commend you for putting it together as a title, is, uh, is extremely timely. And it is not about biology. It's not about uh, technology evolution uh, either. It's, in fact, it's about every, everything that has evolving design. Okay, so maybe. Okay, so, okay. Um, 
So I'll just say, you know, design for me is such a loaded word right, as a scientist, because the last thing I want to say is that anything is designed, because I don't believe that. I don't think anything is designed. Design is something we impose after the fact on what we see around us. And it's because of our uh, squirmy little mammalian brains doing its, the things. But it doesn't mean that there aren't some really extraordinary questions and big questions. So for example, 13.8 billion years ago, the Big Bang, the universe was not the way it is now. It was extremely uniform. It was hot. It had almost no structure to it. Somehow, 13.8 billion years later, it's made structures out of itself capable of recognizing that fact. That's a big question, right? I mean, that, and that's a big scientific question I, for me. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's the more interesting thing. How did it happen? I agree, it's physics. But I don't know how to connect all the dots from 13.8 billion years ago to today. And I feel that sometimes, I, look, you know, we, the fact that we impose this notion of design and form and shape and elegance and beauty on the world around us has been useful in some respects, but we don't know if that's the best thing to do for unearthing the deeper truths. I don't know. I really don't. Um, so I, I just wanted to put that out there. I just, and I just wanted to say, I, desi say design to me, and I kind of go into a quivering, and I want to run out the door, um, just, just, just to say that. Um, let me, oops. Let's see, what, do you want to say something? Well, not really. I mean, to me, like, it's like, a, you know, being a scientist, for me, it's not about, like, figuring out the big questions and all this other kind of stuff. It's just, I'm just, oh, no, seriously, <laughs> no, I, just, I just do it because it's fun. It's creative. Like, you know, like, I mean, it's like that uh, when we discovered, like, uh, it's like, you know, I'm known for studying dinosaurs, and I can't stand dinosaurs. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> but, you know, it's just a way to which, be, like, you know, when we figured out what color dinosaurs were, it's not like we cared. We just wanted to see if we were clever enough to do it, you know? <laughs> and to figure out a way that we could use synchrotron like radiation honesty. and stuff to be able to like you know do it. And that uh, you know, so like I mean, a lot of it is just is just that because it gives us a you know I view science as a mechanism to for us to be able to you know understand all the way from the most fundamental questions in the world to like the lint of figuring out what color one kind of dinosaur was 130 million years ago. So like that, it's just it allows us to be able to do that in a repeatable and fundamental way by you know, using mathematics, by using technology, and by asking the right questions. And it's just a way to approach the world in that way. So, Anybody else? Yes, you can ask another question. Um, so, <coughs> so um, it's there. Just, no, it's fine. I teach, so I, everybody can hear me. Um, in terms of like, so in terms of sort of like answering this question, um, wouldn't answering the question require like some sort of multi-field understanding that for the most part like well, that's two questions. So wouldn't it require some sort of multi-field understanding that we're just not really capable of in anyone's particular 90-year lifetime? It's probably intractable. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, as yeah. a scientist, there's nothing wrong with saying, we can't do that, and I don't know that. So, yeah, because like, 
one of the things I was thinking of was like, in terms of even just, for example, I was watching a documentary on Einstein, and it was a situation where like he ran into mathematics problems. And so it was a situation where like there was a race between him and, a, and a, another mathematician that was older than he was. And, you know, and he's trying to figure, figure things out. You know, and, and a lot of situations where I think, you know, where, you know, yeah, like physics and science and psychology and all these other things. I was, I teach a, uh, a course and I was just talking with this gentleman on the fact that Carl Jung, for example, knew a lot and consulted with people outside of his field, you know, to answer a lot of different questions. And even as myself, as an English teacher, I often, I often bring up things in terms of science and all these other things that I'm learning about and constantly trying to say that, I mean, in terms of that understanding of like convergence, I think that would be necessary for understanding the underlying sort of intelligence that there is to creation. And then the second thing is, um, going back to what you guys were initially talking about, um, in terms of the fact that you know, the dynamic is always changing. That, you know, and, and going to your question, which is, you know, don't we, isn't there always, isn't there always a situation where we don't know? You know, um, like at the end, some, I was reading something when they were saying at the edge of the chaos in the world is always creation, right? Um, so isn't there always a situation where, and if we, if we ever, if we were ever to say, this is God, then wouldn't that be the end of learning? Okay, so that's your question. Okay. <laughs> you can answer. The, uh, what time is it? Your uh, view of it is, in fact, uh, in the right direction. The, uh, first of all, uh, design is uh, basically a movie, not a uh, sketch in a zoology book. Uh, Okay, that's the first thing. The second, um, there is no end to evolution. This speaks of the, uh, um, of the uh, you call it the edge of chaos. I uh, don't use the word chaos because it means uh, I don't know anything, meaning I give up. It's like turbulence. So, uh, but anyway, there is, uh, that's the good news, that, uh, that there is uh, always uh, a, uh, a flow architecture um, in the future that will be um, serving us better. And, uh, and what you call it is really uh, not only up to you, but depends on uh, your upbringing. Uh, some of us uh, uh, have, uh, have gotten both the religion and science. Others have gotten only the first. Uh, others have only uh, gotten the second. But, uh, but every single one of us has the urge to, uh, to, to, to live, I'm talking about, the, I include here my cat, the urge to, uh, to live more easily, uh, uh, safer, longer, and all the rest. Okay. But, but your, okay. question, okay. your question was, if there's a God, should we just stop questioning anything? Is that what you were? And enjoy the fun experience of of you know, living you know. under Trump, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but, well, I, th I think it's not a bad question. I mean, I guess, right, it's going to mean, right, it depends, right? If, 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 if you don't believe in God, right, then you're going to keep questioning. And if you do believe in God, you have a choice. 
right? And historically, many people who believe in God were also scientists and kept questioning the world around them and, and unveiling the majesty of whatever. I mean, it's just different motivation. You know, someone like me is not motivated that way. And even if you told me there is a God, I'd go, nah. No, not really. No, I'm, right. I'm just not going to go there. <laughs> well, like when my kids ask me, and they ask me like every year, it's just like, you know, what do I believe in? I say, I believe in Christians. I think that's an excellent answer. I think that's an excellent answer. One last comment, and we start. I was just going to say, I, I think what you were, you, when you were talking about a God that's not personal, I think I was thinking more about your question. I mean, it fits in with some ultimate explanation. Is what, and that's your calling God, whatever the ultimate explanation is. So you're thinking of like some physicists talk about a final theory, a theory that a mathematical system that will explain everything. And those who want to talk about the quantum creation of reality end up needing to hypothesize like the mathematics of quantum mechanics that is not instantiated anywhere, it's just mathematics and that somehow something, that, that mathematics has given being. So I'm just trying to clarify, I think that was your, and if, if you got to that final theory, whether it's a personal God or not, would questioning cease? Well, you might not be searching for the ultimate explanation anymore, but there'd be a lot of other things to explore. Okay. I, I like Thank that, you. That, uh, that's useful, I think. Okay, thank you very much.